Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Welcome back to MASH Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television show of all time, hosted by a guy who loved the show and a guy who was on the show. Hello, Jeff Maxwell. How are you, sir? Hello, Ryan Patrick. I'm fine. And everything going well there? Everything is just peachy keen and keechy peen. Oh, both. Isn't that a law firm? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, this is a cool episode that we have for you. We have an interview with a gentleman who you probably have not seen a lot of, but you've seen his name a lot in the credits of MASH, and that would be the one and only Mr. Burt Metcalf. Jeff, you worked with Burt. Just give us a Reader's Digest version of who the heck is Burt Metcalf. Well, we're about to find out. Uh, You're going to hear a lot uh, from Burt, and he's going to explain a lot of stuff. But from my point of view, Burt Metcalf originally was uh, an actor. Actor. He started out in show business in a, as an actor. And a little factoid here, he was in the very first episode of The Outer Limits. Huh. So if anybody's a fan of The Outer Limits, find the first episode and watch it and you'll see Burt Metcalf as an actor. And he actually had a fairly decent career as an actor. And I don't know the exact reason, but he changed tracks and he decided to go into the other side of it. And uh, eventually he became a casting director. And then from casting director 20th Century Fox on MASH, he ended up being the associate producer and then inherited the wonderful title of executive producer when Gene uh, Reynolds uh, left. So he did a terrific job uh, at taking advantage of various opportunities. And he did so because he's a really talented guy. And, uh, you know, you, you don't get a lot of chances up to bat at this business, but he took advantage of everyone he had and he made a tremendous success out of it. So the show owes him a great debt of gratitude because when Gene Reynolds left, it was kind of scary. You thought, well, gee, what's going to happen? Who's going to be able to fill those shoes? And Mr. Burt Metcalf filled them beautifully. All right. So we actually recorded this interview earlier this year when we heard the news of Gene Reynolds passing. We said, uh, let's do a little tribute episode and let's get in touch with Burt Metcalf and and get his thoughts on Gene. We thought we were just going to be spending maybe 10, 15 minutes with him. And we ended up spending over an hour with him. He just kept telling great story after great story. Now you have already heard a snippet of this interview. If you heard our tribute to Gene Reynolds that we released earlier this year. However, we want you to hear the whole shebang because it's a really great interview. So without further ado, here in its entirety is our conversation with Burt Metcalf. Yes, Burt is here. Burt is here. The world is good. Burt is here. Burt Metcalf, how are you? I'm doing fine. Is this Jeff? This is Jeff, Bert. Yes. Yes, sir. And and while we're on that subject, let me introduce you to the other half of this, Mr. Ryan Patrick. Ryan, meet Bert. Bert, meet Ryan. Hello, Mr. Metcalf. Hello, Ryan. Make it Bert. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Bert. It's a real treat to talk to you. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. Well, we appreciate it. Jeff, I, I you know, uh, over the years, uh, I've read a lot of your emails uh, and you, you've said some profound things that have been terrific. I think it's just wonderful, this whole MASH email family that we have now that has drawn us a a lot closer. Mike Farrell is partially responsible for that because he became like the town crier, you know. Yes. 
but it, it, it's just great the way between that and the success of the show in reruns and the continuity of it in reruns uh, just seems to bring us all a bit closer, which is nice. I do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that, that I wrote some decent things. I hired a writer, actually, to help me. <laughs> yeah. But now you're in trouble with the guild because you didn't pay him. <laughs> oh, darn it. I uh, I feel that same way. I think the email has really drawn everybody close, and it's made a real community, which is really uh, it's it's been an emotional you know roller coaster and ride because you lose people and you care about people and you care about what's going on in the world and everything, and it gives everybody a chance to communicate about it. So, yeah, and we have lost a lot of people, haven't we? We have. Including Gene Reynolds, which, of course, is why we're convening today. Why we're convening today. And, and you know, Bert, it, it was, it's our opinion that really there's no one other than you we felt more appropriate to share with our listeners kind of an inside perspective of the impact Gene had on the show, had on you, and had on everyone connected with the show, yes. including audiences. Yes, he certainly changed all our lives. So I'm going to start with something that I'm, I think I'm going to get through reading because it, it, when I read it before, just out loud to myself, it was it kind of choked me up. But it's something that you read in the email, the MASH family email thread, and you said, yes, I could read it. So you said, this extraordinary man's talent and wisdom changed all our lives, certainly mine. What greater gifts could one small group receive? Godspeed, my mentor, my father figure, my dearest friend for over 60 years. Right. I thought that was really, really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we had a, a terrific, uh, close relationship of all those years. We, we started by playing tennis in the mid-50s in a couple of public courts in kind of West Hollywood. And um, uh, we just stayed uh, as constant pals for all the ensuing years. Well, first of all, you know, we were both actors. That's how we initially knew one another. We sort of traveled in somewhat the same circles as struggling actors by that point. He'd been a very successful child actor. Yeah. But... Uh, when he grew into adulthood and when he came back from the Navy, which was towards the tail end of World War II, his career did not go so well. And so I, I knew him because he he sold television sets for a, a guy here, maybe n neither of you will have heard of, called Mad Mad Months. Yeah, <laughs> I do remember Mad Mad Months. Yeah, he was a local character who promoted himself and his televisions through the uniqueness of his name, etc. Yeah. And then he he also worked for um, a uh, clothing store in Beverly Hills called uh, Monty Factors, which was upstairs or maybe downstairs. I can't remember. Yeah, downstairs. From a from a barber shop, a very kind of uh, upscale Beverly Hills barber shop, where Harry Gelbart, who was Larry's father, cut hair. Oh my goodness! Right, and that's how he first knew of Larry, and and his dad was uh, equally funny. Uh, Gene would walk in and and say, "Hi, Harry." Uh, how you doing? How's business? And he would say, please stand up when you speak of the dead. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was very funny too. And, 
Uh, although Larry always said that he thought he got his main sense of humor from his mother. But between them all, they were certainly a very, very clever, funny family. Yeah. But anyway, Gene eventually uh, left acting. He got a job in casting. And then eventually through the casting, uh, someone who was working for Mike Edwards gave him a shot to direct. And that was how it all started. But I sort of followed him uh, every step of the way in terms of career moves. I was an actor at UCLA and then... Uh, I started working while I was at UCLA. They used to send talent scouts around, and I would uh, get hired and began working quite frequently in television. I did a couple of different series. and uh, So uh, we were fellow actors for a time, and then we were in a film together called Bridges at Toko Ree, which was a big picture with William Holden and Frederick March and Grace Kelly and Mickey Rooney. But anyway, um, he... Uh, uh, slowly worked his way up, and I would follow him e each step of the way over a, a few months or, or a few years, uh, because I ultimately became a casting director. And um, oh, oh, and before uh, I got into casting, I had been in a series called Father of the Bride, where I, 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 I mean, I co-starred in it. I played the groom. I actually made a living as an actor for for a while. How strange. Yeah, right. <laughs> so. Uh, he came and directed episodes of, of Father of the Bride. So I was, oh. I was now working for him as an actor and then ultimately uh, hired me for a number of other uh, projects that he was involved in. So that was was good. And then I, I got a chance to get into production. It took a while, but I, I had worked several times for Jackie Cooper, who, uh, in a series called Hennessy about a Navy doctor. But Jeff, I don't know, maybe you're too young for most of this. but Yeah, no, I remember Hennessy and, and remember Jackie Cooper. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, so I did that. And so I, I had a nice relationship with Cooper. And uh, eventually I went to see him when I was in this quest to get out of acting because, you know, in 1961, co-starring on a... On a uh, a series, Father of the Bride. I made a thousand dollars a week, and in 1961, for a 26-year-old actor, that was a lot of money. Yeah. So uh, I was doing fine. The problem was that the show only lasted a year, and in the in the year following that, I made half of that money, and then the year following that, I made not half of that. <laughs> so. Well, you may find this somewhat familiar, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but by 65 or 64, I was beginning to seriously think about getting out. I was 30, and I'd always felt 30 was a line that I'd give myself for, you know, taking a shot at it all. So among other people, I went to see Jackie, and he was wonderful. He said, sure, let's talk about it. But nothing happened right away. It was about six months before I heard from him and a woman who I also knew who had hired me as an actor named Millie Gussie, was a well-known casting director. And uh, I got a wonderful part in, a, in a, a Twilight Zone episode that is still run today. Whenever they show one of those Twilight Zone festivals, it's always one of the uh, invitees because it was one of the classic shows. So uh, I, I was working here and there. And anyway, six months later, Millie Gussie calls and says, do you still want to do this? And uh, I had just had a terrific part on, on The Fugitive, the David Jansen Fugitive. And um, I, I thought to myself, because uh, I'd had the best money and the best billing and all of that. And did I want to, you know, change my whole life and get into casting while my acting career was, uh, again, on a bit of an upswing? 
But no, I thought about it and decided, no, it's on an upswing, but I think there are more valleys to come. (laughs) And so uh, I said, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll do it. And so I went to work at Screen Gems and I cast a soap. This is 1965. They wanted me to cast a soap because no one had never done a soap before. So what difference does it make whether I was new or not? Nobody had had that experience. So uh, uh, the irony is that, that that soap from 1965 to 2020, <laughs> that's 55 years ago, and that soap is still on the air. Days of our lives. Wow. Days of our lives. Wow. So I cast that for about a year. Then I got a shot to be moved out of casting and go to work for Harry Ackerman, who was a very successful producer of a lot of kind of silly, frothy comedies. But nonetheless, they did well. The Flying Nun and Donna Reed and Love on a Rooftop and a lot of memorable shows like that. Anyway, right in that, in, in that period after I'd gone to work for Harry Ackerman, Gene called one day and said, I'm, I'm going to do a, a, a new series about a high school called Room 222, and I'd love you to come and help me cast it and be associate producer. You know, we'd have a lot of fun and blah, blah, blah. Well, I said to him, Gene, I just got this other job. I, I'm working for Harry Ackerman now, which, which he knew. Uh, and I said, I've only been there three, four weeks. And I feel it would be somewhat unethical for me to just kind of walk away from that. I, I just was uneasy about the timing of this. Sure. So he understood. And he, anyway, I leave Harry Ackerman I, after about a year and a half. Because there was an internecine battle between him and Len Goldberg, which Goldberg said to him, you're not going to have an assistant anymore. So it wasn't like I was going to be replaced. They took away Ackerman's job. So I had no choice but to try and seek employment elsewhere. And um, there was an opening at Universal. So I went there in 69. And soon thereafter... Gene asked me again. He said, okay, Room 222 was going well on its own, and I'm going to do two more pilots. One is MASH, mm. and the other is Hannah and the King, the Yul Brynner, Hannah and the King. And he did it. He, he did it. Mm-hmm. This was 1970 into 71. He was a terrible pain in the ass, and the show only lasted 13 weeks. But I wasn't all that happy at Universal. I didn't like it all that much. And I was, in essence, trading a year-round contract, a deal that I had at Universal, to go to Gene and do, say, maybe two months on each pilot for four months' work. Yeah. So I did both pilots, cast them, and associate producer and all of that. And then they both sold, and Gene said, you know, you'll do the casting still on the and the King, but, but you want to be associate producer, either of that or the other one, and I'll get an associate for which one you turn down. So because uh, I just couldn't stand Yul uh, Brynner. <laughs> I mean, because he made my life miserable. I was the associate producer, and he'd come to me with so many of his complaints. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I remember we took him into a beautiful dressing room, it had been Tyrone Powers' dressing room, you know, who was a big star at Fox. Yeah. And he kind of sniffed and very condescendingly walked around a little bit and complained about the carpeting. And then there was a little piece of molding on the bar that was somewhat loose. The corner of it was loose. And he took his finger and he put it under the molding and he ripped it. He ripped it off. The whole piece of molding he rips off the, oh. the, the the bar. And he says, I would never set foot in a place as dreary as this. Oh, God. So you see, you see what I'm getting at. Yeah. 
So anyway, the decision that I had to make, which fortunately, of course, was uh, I'll come and do MASH. And uh, he had also a former actor named Jimmy Light. Yes, yes. So he was associate producer for um, Anna and the King. And I was a producer on MASH. His lasted 13 weeks. And mine, counting after MASH, lasted 13 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was quite a difference. So poo-poo Yule. <laughs> Gene and I had a great time together because uh, we had been so close even before this. And, of course, this whole experience brought us even closer. And so when I say he, he was my mentor, I mean, he... He taught me everything. I, uh, I, sure, I knew casting, but I knew nothing about post-production, basically. And, and I knew nothing about so many different areas, the business that I was now going to take over. In the, oh, in the third year, he said, uh, you know, we got an opening for a director uh, in, in the whole schedule. Uh, you want to direct? It'll be your first time you could direct, and I'll help you with it, I mean, but uh, you'll do fine. He said, because if you don't want it, I'm going to give it. Remember Jeff, Bill Jerkinson, who was the um, director of photography at that time. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I thought about it for a moment. I said, well, why don't you give it to Bill Jerkinson? Because he knows the camera and he knows where to put everything and he'll he'll do a good job. And, you know, basically I was scared. Sure. I, I was. I was just, Jesus, that's a big deal. I'm going to direct. Yeah. So I so I I passed. But in the fourth year. Gene and Larry said, okay, that's it. You can't turn us down this time. You got to do it. <laughs> so uh, in the fourth year, I did an episode called Dear Peggy, which referred to BJ's wife. And he was writing a letter home to her. And in it, he talked somewhat about Mulcahy, the priest. And Ned Beatty came to act as the head priest for the whole Asian circuit all the hell out of Christopher because he was such a kind of sweet, ineffectual yeah. priest. He had to fire and brimstone. <laughs> that baby yells at him. You got to be tough with these people. You got to get them to show up. There were only 14 people there today at this year's service, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so that was the beginning for me. And of course, I loved it. And uh, I realized, uh, you know, as an actor, you're concerned with only one thing. But here as director, you get everybody's issues. Everybody comes to you with their problems. Yes. I wasn't afraid by then. that The idea that I have total control of it all, I just love. Yeah. So I went on to, to direct 35 episodes. Wow. And of course, Gene was always a help whenever I had a question. But but this was now the fourth year. And, and Gene left. Larry left at the end of the fourth year. Mm -hmm. uh, and Gene became sole exec producer for the fifth year and brought in um, Don Rio and Alan Katz, if you remember. Yes. That's really the story of the continuity of MASH and Gene and me. And you. He goes after uh, the fifth year to do Lou Grant, and uh, I become a producer and bring in John Rappaport and Jay Fold. Uh, and and I will then became executive producer and ran the show from years six through eleven. Well, so when you were you were kind of uh, coming up as the associate producer of Mash and working with Gene, did you recognize skills and abilities that he had that maybe other people in that same position might not have or not? Oh, might not sure, pay attention sure, to? sure. Because don't forget. 
first of all, I had known him for many years prior to that. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I knew uh, how successful Room 222 was. And um, he'd also done um, pilot for uh, um, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, which ran for a while, and uh, a few other pilots. And I knew that Bill Self, if you remember that name, who, I do. who was the head of Fox Television, Bill Self, after the feature came out, comes to Gene and says, Gene, you're the one. You're the one, the only one I trust with this terrific property. You know, it had been such a success as a movie. And uh, I want you to translate it into a series. It's all yours. You run it. And, you know, get whoever you want. And uh, with a bit of luck, uh, I'm sure you'll make a big success of this, too. (laughs) So that's precisely what happened, of course. He got Larry Gelbart which was a brilliant, brilliant decision on Gene's part. Sure. And they worked very, very well together. Although, you know, surprisingly, people don't realize how much Gene was involved with scripts, not just everything else, but with story and working with Larry. They would come in every Saturday and work on stories. Gene had a great story mind and wrote several episodes on his own, which, sure, Larry would polish, but still, the idea for it came up... And uh, Gene would run with it for a while and give a first draft. And uh, so they were a wonderful combination. And then Gene, from the very outset, before we started, said, I'm going to also get Bert to come over, hopefully, which I said yes, of course. And so the three of us, we worked so well together. We, we, we just, we were enormously fond of each other. We loved each other. And we loved the pressures that we had to go through in order to keep the show running, you know, which is considerable. Gene always said something that I've quoted many times. Once he was asked for his definition of a really successful series, a really good show. And he said, a successful series is the one that has the fewest number of bad episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing, of course, that particularly if you're going to go on for several years and do 25 shows a year, that not every one of them is going to be a gem. You're going to have some clunkers, and we did, but not too many. And we had the enormous advantage of consulting with doctors, Mm. you know, of getting stories from doctors. I don't care how brilliant Larry and Gene and whoever else would come in with stories. And and some did, but, but the main thrust, the main source, the richest vein, the mine of story content was through doctors that we spoke to over the years. Gene started it, and then I followed it all the years that I was there. So I did it for six years, and Gene had done it prior to that. Before we ever started, we got the name of a surgeon at UCLA who had been in Korea. And we contacted him. I'll never forget. His name was Rodney Smith. And he was so fertile for us. I mean, it was just we recorded everything he said, naturally. Mm. And it was it was very potent stuff, all his memories and anecdotes and the stories that he could tell us about his experiences in Korea. Was this at the beginning or was this during? Before the, we ever started. Before you started. Uh, you know, I could be wrong about that in terms of it could have been before we started the pilot or it could have been when the pilot sold and we knew we were going to make a series. Right. But it yeah. doesn't matter. Basically, it's at the beginning. Yeah. But when we were finished with him, 
that evening, he lived somewhere, you know, on the west side near UCLA. Uh, we said, do you know anybody else that we might be able to talk to? And he said, well, yeah, I know a doctor in Kansas City, and I can get you his number because we're still pals. So we did that, and we talked at great length, and we would record the phone conversation. There was a gizmo in those days. You'd put it on the, on the phone, and you'd, you'd get the whole conversation, and then we would have it transcribed into a manuscript form. And you'd go through that, and there'd be the underlying in the manuscript. It'd be several pages of it. It might be a paragraph. It might be two sentences where you, you say, holy shit, this is going to make a great story. Yeah. We'll pair that with the fictional story we're working on. And because that became a pattern for the show where you'd have a maybe one, two, or even three stories and, and all kind of running interwoven. And the bulk of those really good, serious, meaningful medical stories always came from doctors. And so we continued this process. And I, I, I must tell you this. Am I going on too long here? Is this okay? No, no. no, no. <laughs> okay. So I continued it. And the pattern was always the same. You would call a doctor Sunday. You got his number anywhere in the country that had been in Korea, and you get his, you know, whoever answers the phone, it's a nurse or an assistant or a receptionist, whatever, and you tell her basically uh, my, my name, and I, I produce a show in L.A., and it's MASH, and, and uh, we'd love to have a doctor so-and-so's name. Do you think he might be willing to talk to us? And invariably, they'd say, oh, well, oh, gee, I don't know. Dr. So-and-so is a very busy man, and, and I... I, I don't know whether this is going to work at all, frankly. And I'd say, well, do me a great favor. Just mention the name of, and it would be the doctor who had given us this guy as a referral. And, and so it would be a guy that he had served with and that he certainly would have remembered because they used to have these conventions and get together. And I'll tell you about that in a minute, too. But anyway, she would say, well, okay. And, and you know, she'd be doubtful about the whole thing. <laughs> Just call me back. And let me know one way or the other. And so I promise I'll do that. So she would. And she called back. It might be just an hour or it might be a day or two. But she, they'd always call back. Never, never a one miss to call back. Wow. Yeah. And they would say, well, yes, actually, Dr. So-and-so said, yes, he would be, he'd be happy to talk to you. And the doctor would get on the line and I'd say, thanks so much, doc. And I'm sure you're a busy man. So Whatever time you can give us uh, is certainly appreciated because it's very, very helpful to get the real stories like this. And and what would happen ultimately in the conversation is that you couldn't shut them up. <laughs> we would go on. We would go on for the longest time because it was cathartic for them. Yeah, they didn't talk about a lot of this stuff. And they were in showbiz. <laughs> well, in a manner of speaking, yes. Now, yeah. And, but, and, and, and then the irony of it, of it was, because I would be like a kid in a candy store. I mean, this stuff is really rich. You're hearing it for the first time, and you're, my mind, my, the gears are turning, and I'm saying, this is going to make a marvelous story. Anyway, well, one time we heard about one of these conventions that was going on in Chicago. About 25 doctors, they weren't from a surgical unit, they were hemorrhagic fever. Remember, Jeff, we did a couple of shows about hemorrhagic fever. I do remember, yeah. It, it was a, a serious problem there, a kidney fit problem mm -hmm. that she would get from... Well, God knows, from the air, from the germs, from the food, whatever it was. But a lot of guys had this problem, and there was this, this hemorrhagic fever. Anyway, uh, we went to this convention in Chicago, 
And that was just great. I mean, the, the, everybody checks in on Friday evening, and they, we, we had dinner, and, and then the, the next night they have a like a banquet, and each guy gets up. Now, this is 1977, so there's about 25, 30 doctors, and it's about 25 years since the war ended, and who knows how long since they've all gotten together like this. But they talk about their families and, you know, their practice and the kids going to school and all of that. But, you know, they don't talk about a lot of what they're talking about that night. And I'm making appointments to sit with a tape recorder for each of them for a half an hour in the course of the long weekend. And they were all very happy to do that. So that that was even richer reward for, for all of us to take home, you know. But I'll never forget, this was one of the best and I, I could get choked up just reminiscing about it. Uh, I'll never forget a, a compliment that a, a doctor came up to me after the dinner and, and said, I want to thank you for making me a hero to my family. Oh. He said, because they watch the show. They love the oh. show. And he says, and my son, he says to all the neighbor kids, my dad is Hawkeye. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, they're, they're having a sense of what I did and what that whole experience was like yeah. and what it's like to have the bond with other doctors, a bond that is forged in the time of war. Oh, goodness. There's nothing like that. You know, you tell that story. We've, uh, doing this podcast, we have so many people writing to us and saying various comments. It's, it's truly breathtaking, for me anyway. Ryan has been a major fan of MASH for years, and I used to work there. So we have a different perspective on things. Yes. But for fans who really have an emotional response to the show and to the characters, it's been a major eye-opening experience for me. I had no idea it was so important. None of us did. None of us did. Did you, did you have, I think I emailed you the letter that I'd gotten from a guy, just, this is just a couple, three months ago. Yes, yes. I said, everybody gets fan mail, but I, I'd love it if you'd all read this one. Yeah. And, and his devotion, he said, I've seen each episode hundreds of times, and, I, and it gives me such an outlook on life that I never had before. And it just went on and on yeah, about yeah. how what an incredible joy the show has been for him for all his adult life. I mean, it's just astounding, this kind of impact. It is astounding. And you listen to, like, Loretta telling stories about people writing to her saying, well, I became a nurse because of you, or I became a doctor because of you. Right. I don't get anybody writing and saying I became a food server because of you, but <laughs> well, it might happen. Well, you never know. Don't give up hope. <laughs> don't give up. <laughs> so the process of going through and doing so much research like you guys were doing, was that sort of an idea that Gene was focused on? Gene started it, yes. Gene very much started it. Yeah? Gene had read a book. He had it on his shelf for years called Heartbreak Ridge. Mm. Come Down Heartbreak Ridge, I think it was called, uh, which was all about that war and that was also very rich in material and he read this book and, and he this was all in preparing this was all in getting ready to do the show and he said one day I'll, uh, I'll always remember he said you know there's got to be guys out there if I'm getting so much information from this one book there, there's got to be guys out there of course we read uh, Hooker's book Hornberger he was never a big fan of the show you know Hornberger right. he thought it was too left wing as, as did Bob Hope. Bob Hope called it the, the, the situation commie hour. 
it's a situation comedy oh, show, uh, which is pretty silly. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was how the interviewing doctors was born. He said, there gotta be guys. And then we ran into the one doctor at UCLA and that started the ball rolling. And we just kept doing that over and over and over again, because, you know, you can have writers and, and, and certainly Larry Gelbart was just brilliant. They can set the tone for the show. That's what's important. Larry did that so well, the tone. And he grasped that. I mean, because Larry was a genius. You know, Larry was writing, speaking of Bob Hope, he was writing because of his father, Larry's father, Harry, would cut Bob Hope's hair. Hmm. Oh. And and one day, I, Harry says, you know, Mr. Hope, my son is very clever. He's, he's wants to be a comedy writer, and he's very, very good. I, some of his jokes, I think, are just terrific. Do you suppose, you know, he's being so deferential. I know you're a busy man, Mr. Hope, but do you suppose you might read some of his jokes that he'd write for you? Mm. And Bob Hope, being nice to Harry, because Harry cuts his hair, he doesn't want to be rude, but sort of humors him and says, well, sure, Harry, I'll take a look. Sure, have him send me a couple of jokes and I'll, I'll take a look at them. Well, you know the end of the story. Yeah. Hope says, this kid is really special. Yes, tell him to come see me at four o'clock on Thursday and I'm going to put him to work. Now, he's in his late teens. Wow. My goodness. And he, and he worked for Hope for years. He went on tour with him. You know, he would go on those USO tours, as did High Everback. Yeah. High Everback was the announcer on the Hope show, his radio show, but also was sort of like the announcer on all the USO tours. Yeah. Uh, oh, so the, the writers can, can, you know, stare at the wall and think, for days on end about stories and never come up with some of the stuff with most of the stuff yeah. that we got through these doctors who experienced it firsthand. Yeah. That was a, an enormous asset for us. I mean, you can have comedy writers, you know, on sitcoms and, and they may come up with the most banal, foolish kinds of stories that, that are just idiotic. And here we were having this rich, rich source of, uh, of material. It was just uh, incredibly important. And then as the characters grew, you got to spend more time in their relationship. And Larry came up with the whole idea of, of Dear Dad, you know, of writing a letter home. We had everybody write letters home over the years. And uh, there just became lots of sources for stories, but the richest was, was the doctors themselves. And then we'd have doctors who would come to L.A. from different parts of the country for whatever reason. And a lot of them we developed friendships with and, and had serious correspondence from time to time or we'd ask them a question about something they had said in their interview, you know. And so we, we by then we were all pals. We could call them and get a hold of them. So the, the, when they came to L.A., they were encouraged to, to give us a call. And they would often say, gee, I'd love to come out and see the shooting on the stage or go to the where you shoot the exteriors. That was the interesting thing, because they'd come and they'd come out with us to the Fox Ranch yeah. and, and watch a day shooting. And the thing that they all could not get over, they thought was absolutely remarkable, was how similar the terrain was. Oh, my God, I just feel like I'm back in Korea. Wow. Apparently, the mountains and that particular area of the park, Maple Creek State Park now, it was for the Fox Ranch, of course, for many, many years, was absolutely stunning to them in terms of the memories it evoked because of the similarity of where they were. My goodness. 
Yeah. They thought, this is just a remarkable duplication. They, and they weren't only talking about the duplication of the tents and mess hall and that kind of thing. They're, they were talking about the whole ambiance, the, the chopper pad and the mountains, just all of it together was just, they couldn't get over that. Amazing. Fascinating stuff. I, I You know, hearing you talk about all these things and all, your, all of your experiences and working with Gene Reynolds, it's really fun for me. Thank you for doing it because I enjoy hearing it a lot. Of stuff I'd never heard before, and it's just fascinating. And I know it's going to be fascinating to those who are listening. Well, I, I've, I've had a good time doing it, and, and, and I'm, if I haven't given you enough about Gene, if you have any other questions that pertain to Gene, who, because Gene was just an incredible producer, and I want to make sure that everybody understands that. And every decision, not every decision he ever made in life, no, but every decision he ever seemed to make on that show was the right decision. I'm talking about from hiring Larry and happily hiring me and Alan, of course, and everything, every step along the way, his intuition and his overall talent and wisdom was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Beyond which, he was also an, an incredible human being. I mean, he was just a lovely, lovely man, a dear, sweet man who would do anything for anybody, you know, on the show to make them happy. The whole concept of the actors getting to criticize the script or, or make notes on the script and give points of what they agreed or disagreed with after the rehearsal, the table rehearsal. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, no, I do. I do. Okay, good, good. We'd have the table reading at nine o'clock on every rehearsal day. We'd have one rehearsal day and three and a half shooting days were allotted for each episode. And that other half a day would be a pickup day after every few shows so that if there was something else you needed to do to pick up or to retake or whatever. But that was his idea. Then, uh, conversely, as, as charming and, and as accommodating as he can be with the people who were on his team, so to speak, the people who were part of the MASH family, there's not anything in the world he wouldn't try to do to, to make you happy and accommodate you. But if you were on the enemy side, which was the rest of the studio, the studio overhead, let's say, who were always complaining you're spending too much for this, or, or no, you can't have the extra rehearsal day or whatever else you needed. Those people he could fight with like a tiger. <laughs> he would never give up. He was tenacious in everything he did in terms of his quest for perfection. You never get perfection. As I told you, his opening line early in the conversation, the fewest number of bad episodes, he knew he wasn't going to get perfection, but he sure as hell was going to try. It's interesting that that he was such a great artist as well as being a tough businessman who could do both things, yeah. you know, juggle both things. Yeah, that's amazing because exactly. you, you, maybe you can do one, but you get into all the studio you know, machinations and that can be a very uh, scary environment for a lot of people. Yes, yes, right. And then when he went to Lou Grant and he was dealing with a lot of other forces and elements like that, and he had to fight like hell and he made an enormous success out of Lou Grant. Yeah. Lou Grant would have gone on much longer, except CBS got nervous about Ed Asner. Remember, Ed Asner was getting very much politically left. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, Ultimately, the, the the show got canceled because they felt it was getting to be too controversial. You know, I, I last saw Gene at the uh, memorial for Bill Christopher. Ah, uh -huh. yeah. And I had a chance, and I I walked up to him and I said, Gene, you know, I used to watch you do all this stuff, watch you direct and watch you produce and watch you, you know, negotiate and navigate through a 
a high wattage bunch of actors. Right. <laughs> yeah, I said, I just want to let you know that I, I appreciated what you did, and I thought you did it with great elegance. Yeah. And he went, oh, elegance. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I think he did. That's what oh, I used absolutely. to see him. He wouldn't think of it particularly as elegant, but but I know obviously you say he appreciated the compliment. Yeah. But yes, he was. He was brilliant at it. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And everybody uh, loved him, and everybody you know would have done anything for him as well. Exactly. You know. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Bert, this exactly. is Ryan again. Thank you for your time today. This has been wonderful hearing these great stories. My last question for you is: You stepped into the role of executive producer, and you you filled uh, his giant shoes. And I'm just curious, what is it that he brought to the table as executive producer that you were able to emulate in your role as executive producer? Well, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, in the first place, I would I would say in terms of temperament, that we're basically the same in terms of nobody was a screamer, <laughs> if you know what I mean by that. And, and uh, you know, I think of myself as a kind of decent, uh, considerate person that certainly Gene was in spades. And, and so when I got there, I, I, and of course I'd known him for a long time, but, but I, I could, I could see that his temperament was not all that different than mine, that I wasn't going to learn technically everything he knew or ever perhaps, but all of it in a couple of weeks, it was going to take me a long time. Don't forget, I had four years with the two of those guys, four years. And then Gene for the fifth year. So I had all kinds of opportunities because Larry was like that too. I cannot tell you because, in fact, Jeff, you may have seen this in print somewhere recently in all the obituaries and stuff about Gene's passing. Mike Farrell happened to make reference to this practice of uh, letting the actors comment on the script after the rehearsal. Yes. And, and Mike Farrell, who said, I thought I died and gone to heaven when he first arrived. Mm -hmm. And he's, I'll, I'll see if I can paraphrase this well enough. He said, on most half-hour shows, not only do they not want you to render an opinion on the quality of the script, they don't even want you to think about it. They don't even want you to ever talk about it. They don't care about whatever you think. Yeah. But the thought on scripts on, on company shows, first of all, ever having a rehearsal day is a big deal. But this notion of <laughs> that we're going to let you comment on the script and that we're actually going to vote uh, the rest of the morning, we would go, the, we'd read from 9 to 9.30 and from 9.30 to could be close to noon. Before lunch, we would break before lunch most times. The fact that we would let you comment on the script. Oh, and then in, in the afternoon, just to fill out this rehearsal day, in the afternoon, the director would just lock those scenes in the script. We wouldn't be there. He would just stage this. They'd walk through them with the script in hand, and he'd say, Alan, why don't you cross the head of the mess tent table there when you say that line, and then come back towards us and then leave. You know you know what blocking is. So they would do that, and then around 5, 6 o'clock, when they were done, Larry, Jean, and I would come out to the stage and would watch this quick and very abbreviated, sure, but nonetheless very, very helpful, very informative uh, rehearsal. And we would say, gee, you know, that gives me an idea, Larry would say. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to change that line to begin with. But then what if he goes over and takes a drink from the still while, while he's saying that? You know, it, it, it stimulates the mind of all of these 
gifted artistic people. Yeah. So yeah. the idea that a show would devote as much time and energy to this particular day so that the actors, and not only them, but the writers and us as well, are going to learn more. It's all about learning. We're going to, we're going to learn more before we start shooting. Isn't that great? Amazing. That is absolutely unheard of, particularly on a film show. I mean, yes, multiple camera shows have a bit of a leg up in that they have several days rehearsal uh, while they're doing it. And then they, and, and there's lots more time for rewriting. We would only rewrite on the rehearsal day because once you start the meters ticking on a film show, you got to keep going because there are certain elements in the script where you told props would be this, you told the scene designer it would be that, and you've committed to certain things that are not easy to just up and change the way they are on a, a show that's going to rehearse for a week. Gene really kind of set a precedent and sort of set the tone for the whole show, and you really took over that tone as well and did a beautiful job with it as well. Thank you. I was, I was able to learn so much in those four years yeah. that looking back on it, I, sure, I would feel that I, I was well qualified now, but here's the best part. Uh, because I could think I was well qualified and not necessarily anybody else agree with that. <laughs> but the point was that Larry and Gene Oh, and Alan, yes, not to forget Alan. (laughs) They all went when she knew he was going to go and do Lou Grant, but it was all still just happening initially and immediately, and right at the most embryonic stage of the transition of his leaving, Gene, Larry, and Alan went to... Uh, I can't remember the chronology. It may have been Cy Salkowitz. I can't remember who was then head of television. But they even Bill Self was still there. They they went to all these people and said, now, don't go outside looking for anybody else to take over for Gene. Uh-huh. They all vouched for me. Oh, that's beautiful. They all said, you got to let Bert do it because Bert knows how to do it better than anybody you can get from the outside. Oh. So they really vouched for me. Yeah. And that was touching. And and Gene and Larry said, Gene and Larry was gone, period. But Gene and Alan said, we'll vouch for him to the point that we'll be consultants. We'll read each script and we'll give notes and, and uh, you know, be as helpful as we possibly can. And, and Alan didn't have time for this, but I don't know, Jeff, if you were aware that when we would be in production, one evening a week at my old house where I lived, all the writers and Gene, Alan didn't come because it was, he would give some notes, or, you know, read the script. But Alan, you know, Alan was shooting at till seven, eight o'clock and sure. we would just be getting started. So I, I don't remember his coming very much, but he was very helpful in, in other ways. But Gene would come to uh, my house and as, as I say, with, with the, the entire writing staff and we would go over whatever the next week's script was going to be and he would help us polish that somewhat and then maybe we were working on a, on on a couple other scripts you know for future episodes beyond that and and, and he would have read that and would help us then this, this scene in the second act doesn't work he would say you know what you need to do is you want to be able to establish the relationship between Alan and Mike and the guy with, with the Japanese cultural commission whatever you know 
know, I'm making this up. Yeah. But it was the idea that wherever there was weaknesses in the show or whether we needed some help on a plot point, he would be enormously helpful. And I don't know, uh, Jeff, if you read that email that was from Dan Wilcox just a few days ago. Yes. What I'm referring to is one by one of the writers on the show who said he happened to be on one evening at one of these sessions and, and Gene, in like a half an hour, dictated a whole way to go, a different way with a story. And that, that he said the facility and brilliance with which Gene accomplished this, he said it was just dazzling. Dazzling yeah. was his exact <laughs> word. He, he yeah. said everybody was astonished mm. at how facile Gene could be in terms of solving the problems of a script worth saving, but not in its present form worth shooting. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that's a gift. Yeah. That's a great gift. And it comes from years and years and years of experience and having been such an intelligent, perceptive guy yeah. with such a broad range of experience. You know, he was a child actor. And from the age of nine or 10 years old, he, he began to learn this business so completely, so uh, uniquely uh, that, that he was phenomenal. Well, we are all very lucky that uh, that Bill Self didn't call somebody else <laughs> to produce the show. <laughs> I have to. I have one more question for you. You've been a an actor, a casting director, a producer, a director, a writer. Is there any one that you just love more than the other? Well, you know, it's all relative. I, I from the, about the age of eight or nine, like Gene, I was living in Montreal in Canada. And I, I wanted to be an actor. I knew it. I knew I wanted to be an actor. So I had a passion for many years, and I did professional radio. Oh. In the, there were dramatic content half-hour radio shows, and I did a few of those. Not an enormous amount, but I, I, I left Montreal at uh, the age of 14. So everything I'm telling you now is prior to 14. The radio show, I was in an acting school, an acting class or slash school. They called it elocution. I don't know if you ever heard that term applied, <laughs> yeah, but, sure. but they, would, they would do plays. And so I, and I, I came from a large family, not immediate, but cousins and aunts and uncles. And, and uh, the Jewish holidays, Passover and every other Jewish holiday, would be big family dinners. And I had an uncle who nurtured all of that in me, in which he'd say, now remember, as soon as dessert is over, Burton is going to entertain us. He's going to do a few pantomime record impressions. <laughs> you know, I would do Danny <laughs> Kay, do Danny Kay on the record. And, and then I would do imitations and skits and whatever, nonsense stuff. But that's where it began, because my father had died when I was three, oh. and I had no memory of him. And I had, it was a fairly affluent outer external family. And, and this was a way for me to compete with all the other cousins. After dinner, I had the spotlight for a half an hour, you know? Yeah. So that's where it was born in me, this, this spotlight, this acting is, is pretty decent stuff. <laughs> and I came and I went to UCLA and I was a big deal at UCLA. I won a lot of acting awards. And I worked with Cal Burnett. She was there at the same time. And a number of other people that I can mention who went on a nice career. But anyway, I don't want to spend too much on acting because it's long, long ago. But of course, I love that. And for me, I made short shrift of it when I told you of going to see Jackie Cooper and then six months later getting the offer. When it came in, in the conflict in my mind, it, 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 it was not easy. I was giving up a dream. Sure. I was giving sure. up that dream that I had no idea 
whether I'd ever be able to replicate. Yeah. The casting thing, yes, I enjoyed. And to be part of the business on the production side, I enjoyed a lot. But for me, when I got to direct, I told you that first time I directed, and I realized how much I enjoyed it and how special it was and how I could see little things that maybe I could help make the scene better. But I was so lucky having had four years of experience because over four years' time, there were lots of occasions when I went to Gene, like when he was directing or I would go up to Larry uh, when he was on the set or maybe when we came back, and I'd say, you know, if he or she did that or if we changed that writing thing, I did enough of that. I'm not saying that I was God's gift to them. They could have done as well without me and my comments. But my comments to them over the years were sufficient enough for them to say, he knows what he's doing and he knows he can do it. And of course, that's why Gene had asked me to come there in the first place, because I would give him acting suggestions here and there when I was at Universal. He would call and say, I'm doing this pilot. I'd love it. I know you're busy, but can you give me a few ideas? And I would call him back a few days later. And I did this several times because he's my friend. Right. I didn't get as a chore or I wish to hell he wouldn't call. I don't have time for this shit. <laughs> no, he was my dear friend and I was happy to help. Yeah. But he, he the, the friendship was returned. And he remembered when it came time, you know, Bert can help me in so many ways. How can I get him over here? So yeah. anyway, so that answers long-windedly to your initial question. Each had its own merit. Yes. Acting and directing. And directing even more than the producing and writing. I, I never wrote, to, oh, I did once with Alan. You remember the party? Yes. That was the yeah. show where they arranged for all their relatives at home to meet at a hotel in New York. Yeah. And have a reunion. And, and in the tag, Gary goes and slinks up to Winchester and says, you know, after the war, they're, they're saying that. We should all have a reunion. And I, I'd love to come to Boston, and you'd come to Ohio, <laughs> Iowa, and we'd, we'd be real pals. Now, of course, Winchester, Styers absolutely hated radar. I mean, couldn't get, get away from it fast enough. So the thought <laughs> that this idiot kid is going to come and spend time with my family was just... Uh, oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to bring the show a bit into focus. Anyway, that show... Um, I did write the first act uh, to the blank page, and Alan wrote the blank page uh, to, to, to the end of the first act. Hmm. But that was the only time I ever did that. But I used to contribute a great deal in the writing sessions in terms of shaping the stories and polishing the stories. And that was a kick, too. But the, reg- the direction, I think, was still the, the very best. Very exciting stuff. Very exciting stuff. What an amazing journey. Yeah, it, it really was. And I was very, very lucky, as I say, with each step that I took in those first four years to get to where they would vouch for me, of course, made all the difference in the world for the next six years because I, I was very comfortable in, in what I was doing. And, and yes, I, I felt that things were going well. I had to make some big decisions in terms of casting that went very well. You know, when when um, David Stiers was, was dying, I wrote him an email because I think, you know, we would correspond here and there, but not a lot. He, he was very reclusive. But I said to him, I want you to know that my decision to hire you 
play the character that basically I had conceived because I was in the Navy and knew a guy a little bit like this. To, to come and play this uh, character on MASH was the best decision I ever made of, of all the decisions one has to make on a series. What's the best decision I ever made? And of course, it wasn't my decision. It was your presence. I'm not taking credit for it beyond your appearance on the show that you took over from there, you know, right. Uh, it was your contribution, which was uh, absolutely enormous because I, I made a very quick decision. I had, I was homesick with the flu on a Saturday night and I saw him on the Mary Tyler Moore show and he played a character. I said, oh, that's the actor. I'd never seen him before. Yeah. He told Lou Grant and Mary uh, that if they didn't shape up, he was going to fire them. And he and, and they were calling his bluff in a, in, a, in a sense. He said, "Don't be uncertain of what I'm saying to you, because if you leave, I'll see you in the gutter." <laughs> as, as a laugh, he gets a laugh, you know. And I yeah. said, "Oh, wow, that's great! Here's somebody who could be vicious and still be funny. Still get a laugh. He, yeah. he get a laugh and be likable. <laughs> yeah. He was likable oh, in his own strange, unique, terribly unique way. Yeah. So anyway, that was a very quick decision. But uh, but I'm making a decision." which I'm saying, I hope it turns out. I hope I'm right. <laughs> well, he, of course, was an enormous contributor, and it all worked out beautifully. Of course. So I was saying to him, your contribution was just so vital, and I'm totally indebted to you for our lifetimes, yeah. knowing that his was very short. But I loved the fact that I was able to communicate that to him yes. before he died. Anyway, that's an example of a decision that I had to make that I obviously was very, very happy. Well, I think you made a lot of really good decisions because <laughs> uh, a lot of people have uh, have enjoyed all of the work that you put into the show. It, it, it was a total 11 years of joy, absolute joy. And, and uh, it, it was only a preface to making lots and lots of bad decisions on Aftermath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we won't go there. <laughs> so I bored and made up for the clean slate <laughs> that I've enjoyed on MASH. Well, the yin and yang of things, you yeah. know, what the heck. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> well, Bert Metcalf, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you talking with us. I love you, my friend. and uh, I love you a, too, Jeff. You, you were always a very sweet guy to have around. I, I enjoyed your contribution to the show. Thank you. It was flawless. I never had to, <laughs> I never had to you. give you well, much of a note or a criticism <laughs> or say, oh, you can do that better. I mean, you, you all, you have great instincts. It was all there. It was. All there. I had good instinct. I could have done it all better, but I had a good instinct. <laughs> now, let, let, let me let me just say one last thing, because you keep telling me how grateful you are. I want you to know that you're not obligated. That I've enjoyed this as much, if not more, than you have. Mm. So it's not a question of who is indebted to who here. Well, my hands over my heart. Thank you. Thank you. Our thanks to Bert Metcalf for spending some time with us here on MASH Matters. What a great talk. Well, I'm telling you, that is enough information to uh, really get somebody going about MASH and really get a, a real picture of what went on and who did what and when they did it and all that kind of stuff. So that was a real treat. And for anybody who's really interested in the kind of behind the scenes of MASH, you just got a real big look behind those scenes. Yes, you did. And we're going to have more big looks for you in future episodes episodes with some more guests here on MASH Matters. Plus, keep your questions and comments and voicemails coming in. 
reach out to us on Twitter, on Facebook. You can subscribe to us and listen to us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Email us, mashmatterspodcast at gmail.com. And you can call and leave a a voicemail under three minutes in length at 513-436-4077. Just like to say one more time, Bert, thank you very much for a great, well-spent visit with MASH Matters. We really appreciate it. And until next time, here's looking up your old address. (laughs) 